Welcome to Church 213. We're so glad you're tuning into our new series titled Tools of the Trade, where we'll be going through some of the most popular Bible verses and equipping you with the tools to understand them and use them. Thanks for listening. Hey, in 1939, the movie Wizard of Oz hit the silver screen. Now, that movie was was uh, cinematically transformative because it used technicolor for the first time. It went on to win a lot of Oscars. Most of you have seen it. Some of you may actually have that movie in your library. But one of my favorite scenes is when Dorothy and the, and the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man, they're standing before the Wizard of Oz the second time around. And they're just as scared. They're, they're just as fearful. They're standing in front of the great and powerful Oz. Everybody's picturing that scene, right? That you've seen it. Y'all with me? So, because they're scared to death, they're in his presence and they're shaking. There's fire. There's smoke. There's lightning. There's all these effects. They're speechless. They're discouraged. Until... Dorothy's dog leaps out of her arms and he runs over to the side of the stage and with his mouth, he, he, I don't know what else we've used, but with his mouth, he grabs this curtain and he pulls this curtain back and what you see is the great and powerful Oz is nothing more than an old man hiding behind this curtain, creating this illusion, pulling these levers and, and talking into this microphone. And even tries to kick the dog away, if you remember. Y'all with me? You're looking at me like, what in the world? He tries to kick the dog away. And he actually says these words, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Y'all with me? So, the neat thing about this, this scene and what I like about it so much, and really how it plays right into our series, this was the moment that everything changed. Everything in the movie hinged right here because once they could actually see behind the curtain, they weren't scared anymore. They had all this boldness. All this boldness came out. And little Dorothy, she, she stood up to the great and powerful Oz because it wasn't that guy, it was that guy who wasn't very intimidating. And I thought, man, they, they didn't cower in silence anymore because they had a new perspective. And for us... And for those in the movie, that phrase, great and powerful Oz, it seemed indefensible. You know, the first time they stood there and they were were frozen, they they were out of options. What are you going to say? What can you say? Nothing. They felt stuck. But everything in my life is a sermon illustration. I just asked my kids. I was thinking about this. Man, they, they, felt, they felt stuck. They, they felt like that phrase put them in a place that they, they, they had no comeback for. And I don't know about you, but I cannot stand to be backed into a corner without a good comeback. I practice good comeback. I Google good comebacks. I'm ready for you. Bring it. But because comebacks are important because it gives you a, a new perspective of leverage. And as Christians, there's a phrase that also makes us 
feel like we're backed into a corner. The phrase can make you feel stuck. And it's this phrase. Well, the Bible says. I mean, what are you going to say, right? How many of you heard it? Well, the Bible says. You're like, oh, man. You know, why does that phrase put people on the defense? I mean, it, it does me a lot of times. And I got to thinking, both of those phrases, the great and powerful Oz, and that phrase, well, the Bible says, they have the same motive. And it puts us on defense because if you think about the context of both of those phrases, they're used by people who are trying to leverage power and suppress resistance from being called out on something. Mm. I'm glad I'm here to hear that. That, that's, that's usually the motive. People have things going on behind the curtain of their life and they don't want anybody tugging on the curtain. So they use the phrase, what? The Bible says, try to get you on your heels. And as your pastor, you know, according to 2 Timothy, my primary responsibility is to encourage through the scriptures, to teach by the scriptures, and to comfort through the scriptures. And to rebuke through the scriptures. I signed up for this. A sign of a good leader is you're going to have a couple of arrows in the back. Amen. But it's from the scriptures. And just because a person says, the Bible says. Listen church, it doesn't mean you can't question what they understand the Bible is saying. Because it has context. So don't let that phrase, the Bible says, instantly put us on our heels. So what I want to do this morning is to dig out the context of a verse that will help us be offensive. Because the reality is the Bible does say a lot of things. Amen? It's authoritative. But it has context for a specific time and for a specific people. But we hear it all the time. Well, the Bible says, I'm like, you're exactly right. The Bible does say. The Bible says a lot of things. The, the Bible says don't wear clothes woven of two kinds of material. That's Leviticus 19.19. 19. So if you're wearing a polyester shirt, the altar is here. I mean, the Bible says, right? The Bible says you in Leviticus 19.27, you shall not round the side growth of your head or harm the edge of your beard. Casey? Where's Casey? Right here, my man. Did you, did you trim your beard this week? Did you trim? Yeah? Anybody, guys, show of hands, you shaved today? Come on. Yeah. Join me. Me too. The Bible says in Exodus 23, 19, Thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk. What? Everybody, all those kids in kids town right now that are getting this feed are like, Thank you, Lord. I mean, the Bible says, right? Some crazy stuff in here. But see, we are week four into our series, Tools of the Trade, where I'm giving you proper use of the Bible's most popular verses. So week one, um, if you remember, the big idea was the importance of biblical context. 
Week two, we looked at Jeremiah 29.11. I saw so many cups in goodwill of Jeremiah 29.11. I think everybody took their cup to goodwill. No, I'm kidding. The big idea was this. It was obedience in God. Last week was Philippians 4.13. The big idea was contentment through God. And so the verse this morning is probably the verse that's used more often in an argument. When someone feels like somebody has pulled the curtain back on them. And to be honest, we all need that from time to time. And to be more honest, we don't like to feel conviction because we feel exposed. And so often we use this, wor- this verse as a shoo away verse. Shoo. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And so it's no surprise that these famous words of Jesus, I believe, are the most frequently misapplied, misinterpreted, misused verses in the entire canon. And I've been chomping for four weeks to get to this one. Because it's so personal to me as a, as a person who stands on the authority of the word and hears out of context what the Bible says. This is on your notes. We must be careful not to quote the Bible to deflect clear conviction. It's been said this verse is often used as a shield for sin, meaning it's used to back other people into a corner, leaving them speechless and stumped so that the offended can continue to justify living as they please without any regard to moral boundaries. Man, that's the way this verse is often used, to to deflect clear conviction. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, let's stand together and read just one verse, and then we're going to expound on it over the next uh, hour and a half. Okay, just seeing if y'all are paying attention. Um, Not really, I'm just being serious. Matthew, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, says this. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. That's it. You've heard it, right? Bible says. Bible does say. God, I thank you that it does say. Lord, I thank you that this complete revelation teaches us and shows us for a specific time, for a specific people, for a specific purpose. God, how we can take these defensive words, but in a heart of humility and of love, we can apply it in its context so that we can be a light set on a hill. And so, God, with our Bibles open, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be even more open over the next few minutes. Spirit, move in this place. Change hearts, change lives, bring restoration and rescue, Lord, because of its power. God, we have nothing outside of your power and your presence. So, God, we claim it. God, help us to write on the hearts of ourselves with a pen of your blood so that we can soak it up. We can seek holiness and righteousness so that we can have a fight, that we can have a comeback, one of biblical authority so lord i pray that you would make us what we are not god you would grant us what we have not 
and you would teach us what we know not this morning for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a seat. So that's it. And, and I, I really like the smiles on your faces a lot when I read that because you know it, it's so real. It, it's so real, Matthew 7, 1. And if you're like me, um, this verse can get under, get under some skin. It, it gets under my skin from time to time. Not in every case, but in most cases, it gets under my skin because I feel like Jesus' words are being used to cut my legs out from under me. To, um, to, to try to discount the fact that as a Christ follower, Christ tells me to be a city on a hill, a lamp in a dark room. And so the, the, the verse is off, often thrown out in order to, to cause us to shrink back in fear. The way that it's used, most of the time out of context, the Bible uses this verse to imply that aren't we all sinners? What qualifies you to make moral judgments about somebody else? You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Are you God? I mean, all those are bold statements that will back us into a corner, won't they? I mean, what are you going to say? It's, it's a tough thing to have a comeback for because we're not God. We are not perfect. I mean, even a crooked stick can draw a straight line, but the Bible says we're still crooked deep down. So there's always something to find for the person that's looking. And so this verse is thrown to us. So what do we do? We keep silent or we get angry because we don't have that comeback because we believe they have a point and that we believe we don't have a voice. And so we stand there, shaken, speechless. But I want you to know that we do have a voice. We do have a voice when we have the proper interpretation. So that's what we're going to dig out. Knowing what the Bible actually means, the beauty is it'll give you the right attitude. It'll give you that comeback that'll move you out of the corner and, 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 and the person misquoting that verse, it will bring them out behind the curtain. It's a win-win. So my goal this morning is to ex- ex- exegete that text in order for us to come out of the corner and have a comeback so we can battle our own insecurities and to, and to, and to that person that's using the verse, bring them out from behind the curtain. Because that's really what they're trying to do. And so the first thing that I want you to notice is this. Silence is not biblical. Silence is not biblical. The proper use teaches the opposite of just hiding and cowering in a corner. Look at verse um, verse 1. We're going to read Matthew 7, 1 through 4. It says this, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. 
See, most of the time, verses 1 and 4 are put together, leaving out 2 and 3. But they all work at the same time. Uh, uh, the verse 7-1 is often used to shut down the critic from saying anything critical. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's casting judgment on some people. Which is judgment, which is just calling into question or pointing out the obvious. And he's doing this, he's casting judgment on the spirit of the religious leaders of the time. The scribes and the Pharisees. Who were teaching something that was in direct opposition of the true righteousness that's found in the kingdom of God. You see the irony here? The irony of using this verse to say you can't judge is being used in a judgmental tone. I mean, if you think about it, chapter 7 is part of the Beatitudes. It's part of, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest, continuous, uninterrupted block of words of Christ in the whole Bible. It covers chapters 5, 6, and 7. So if you think about, uh, if you think about Matthew 5, it rolls out the 10 Beatitudes. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is unpacking what those Beatitudes mean. So Matthew, you have to know, was, was Jewish, and his letter was to the Jewish people. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand that Jesus was teaching what the kingdom of God will actually look like compared to what the leaders had turned it into. These verses are telling us how to biblically judge. It is. And what gives us the right to do it? Under the right conditions, Jesus tells them, tells them they do have the authority to run up, run up on somebody and pull back the curtain. Over the past several centuries, the scribes and the Pharisees, see, they had developed their own standard of religious, religion and morality, and they're holding everything else to these self-made beliefs. The problem was, though, by the time Jesus was preaching this, they had slowly changed God's word to suit their own thinking. That's the context. Specific time for a specific purpose to a specific people. So the, the leaders, they were self-righteous. They were extremely judgmental. They looked down on everyone that wasn't part of their elite system of rules. You can really see this in the second season of The Chosen. You can see it. So if you don't know about The Chosen... You need to get in on it. Download the app. Go to your app store. It's called The Chosen. And it's, 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 uh, it's the biggest crowd-funded mini-series on the life of Jesus. And it's beautifully done because it kind of brings to life some of this stuff. These religious leaders, they were hung up on external appearances. They were superficial. They didn't want anybody to, to round off. The, the, the hair on their head or to trim the beard. They didn't want any mother boiling their, their kids in, in milk. You see, and this thing had gotten way out of hand. They lacked compassion. They had no grace. They had no mercy. They had no love. And they lived to justify themselves as qualified representatives of God in the eyes of other men. All the while being far from God on the inside where it actually mattered. And Jesus, 
have come to expose them. Expose the scribe, tribe, that's what I call them, by defining the way his followers who were sitting on this acoustical plateau on the mountain to explain to them what true righteousness actually looked like. See, being a part of the religious crowd, you know, it required them to be sold out, hungry, pure heart for God and pure heart for other people. That was what was required. And it didn't require being elevated over others through condemnation because of their knowledge alone. You ever felt like somebody was just better than you because they thought they knew more than you? What's the old adage? I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. They had missed that. Proverbs 1.7 says, Fear, which is submission reverence of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. Fear, submissive reverence, which is why your children should fear you. My children fear me. At least they better. But it means submissive reverence because of my love for them. And so Jesus didn't come to turn the world upside down. He was coming to turn the world right side up. The Pharisees had flipped it on its head. They had had confused it. And he was speaking out against what they were doing wrong. And so should we to those on the outside of the will of God. I'll say that again for those in the back. So should we for those that are outside the will of God. This entire sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7, was about speaking out. Speaking out uh, against the difference between spiritual truth and spiritual hypocrisy. That is the point here. And the people that were following him that were seated there on that mountainside against the backdrop. Hearing this, uh, these words carry over the water, this acoustical plateau. They would get it. They knew exactly who Jesus was judging. Jesus places perfect and holy standard beside unholy and self-righteous standards of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he's doing is he's declaring that those who follow those unholy and self-righteous standards, that they have no part in the kingdom of God because they thought they did because of what they knew. But he says, your heart was far from me. If you think about it, there is no more controversial and judgmental sermon ever preached than right here in Matthew 7. Well, the Bible says you shouldn't judge. Not exactly. Now, I believe that one of the things we can do better, a better job of as believers, is to have the courage to call somebody out. You want to run out? Now's your chance. Jesus wasn't advocating for a hands-off approach to moral accountability. It was the opposite. He was was telling them how to be a part of the kingdom of God. He was calling out the scribes because they were quick to see the sins of others but were blind. And here's the key, church. Not only were they blind to it, but they were unwilling to hold themselves accountable to the same standard that they were imposing on everybody else. That's the key for us. So we can't allow ourselves to be driven into the closet anymore. And silenced by the fear of being labeled. That is a real thing right now. The fear of being labeled. Being labeled as judgmental. As intolerant. Because of the word of God. 
I think the fear of being labeled is one of the greatest devices of fear that God has used, especially over the last 18, 19 months of the pandemic. The label of uncaring, the label of judgmental. I mean, the labels go on and on. So in, in order for us not to be canceled, in order for us not to be labeled, we just cower back at the whole time Satan is having his field day with this earth. The reality is, it's this word alone that's going to bring people back together. It's this word alone that's going to bring unity and peace. And I'll be the first to admit that, that I've backed off at times because of the perception. I didn't want to offend the sinner. I don't want to be labeled. Anybody with me? And I know that you have too. You know, many of you feel like that, that your, your, your witness has been silenced. But I want you to know that we're living in a day, more than ever, where people think perception is reality. It's the battle for truth. What in the world is truth? I, I cannot tell you. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I have thought, what is actually true here? I could take Saturdays off. Man, you know what I mean? We could get the good turkey at the, at the, at the grocery store. If we had a dollar for every time we've tried to decide, what is true? Man, all these facts, all this opinion, what is the truth? If you think about it, that's what cancel culture is all about. Labels and perceptions that attempt to redefine reality. But the reality is this. We've compromised our truth through the act of silence. And where has that really gotten our culture? We're not any better. I mean, if, if not speaking out makes things worse, how about we step beyond the curtain in ourselves? What we've seen is just more immorality and lawlessness, which is exactly what the back of this book says will happen because people want to stay behind the curtain. And as they stay behind the curtain, they become more prone to lawlessness in their heart and sin uncompromised. And all around us we see, man, every commandment's being broken. It, it seems like sin is celebrated. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. And we're living in a day right now. It is in our face. And this scares me to the core. It is in our face that the only one virtue remaining is tolerance. That's the only thing left. This is on your notes. Tolerance is the last virtue of a hopeless people. Tolerance is the last virtue of a hopeless people. New Testament says, in the days of Noah it will be. Think about how tolerant the people were in Noah's day. For him to be the only righteous left. Everything went. Everything went. Except for saying that you need to get on this boat because not everything goes. And it seems, we're, we're there. It seems that, that anything goes except for telling someone that not anything goes. Amen. Man, that is a dangerous place to be. That's a tough place to kind of defend from. It, and, and it backs you in a corner, doesn't it? And we're right here, church. I mean, we're right, we're right here in, the, in this moment in our, in our culture. I want you to realize that. See, when there's only one virtue left, that means that there's only one sin left. 
which is the sin of intolerance. Which is the act of being judgmental or judging the behavior. How about that? Okay. It's got one bar, so in about 10 minutes, we're going to be doing this all over again. This is, this is it. The insanity of it all is that people want to see things change, but don't want to actually change the things that will bring the change the fastest. I mean, if you came in here with a tag on your pants, brand new pair of pants, you know, people say, what size pants do you wear? Well, I wear 32, but 34 fits so good about 36s. <laughs> but let's just say that you walked in with a new pair of pants, and you know what I'm talking about. It's got the sticker right here. You can't see it. I think that's why they put it back there. You know, because the wife buys the pants. You know, man puts them on. He wears them. He doesn't look back there, and he's certainly not going to look in the mirror. And so, if you came in this room with a pair of pants, and I and it had a sticker on it, and I come up to you, and I'm like, "Hey, man, um, let me get that for you." I'm not judging you. I'm not, I'm not trying to gain advantage over you in some way because of what I know and what you don't know. I'm trying to keep you from unnecessary criticism because I've been there myself before. If, if a building is on fire and there's a person inside of it, I am not being judgmental for yelling, saying, Your house is on fire. You can't judge me. I'm not. I mean, it would be foolish to stay silent, right? Because, you, you, you know, you stay silent because you didn't want to offend that person trapped in the flames. You're not judging anybody. You're trying to save their life. You're trying to save their family, their children, their future. You're trying to secure an eternity. Church, you can't judge me. That's exactly what Jesus was doing right here. He was judging others. And he was teaching the people how they should also speak out. Because speaking out is the way that we bring things back into order. That's how you bring chaos back into order. You point out what's chaotic and you come up with a plan. And the plan to solve the chaos of sin is the redemptive blood of Jesus. And so you're not judging somebody when you're pointing out what's behind the curtain. And they're on fire with flames. See, only right doctrine, biblical living, can teach and show the world what true holiness looks like. What, what unity is, what fellowship is, and what fellowship is not. This is the standard. This was God's plan to show the world 
what it was like. In the Old Testament, it was the, it was the billboard of the Israelites to point people back to the glory of God. In the New Testament, there was a new, there was a new thing set up. It was called the church. And together, we are the ones that make things, make wrong things right. And if we have wrong things wrong in here, we'll never be able to make wrong things right out there. That's why corporate worship is so critically important. I say it. Yeah, you don't have to come to church to be a Christian. I don't have to go home to be married. But it helps. Because you put yourself into a position of worship around God's people that are all running in the same direction as we are for the glory of God. In fact, if you think about it, the church reformers of the 16th century, they were people of very strong vocal beliefs and conviction. I mean, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the church wall. There, was a, there were 95 things that the church would, could not do, and drums in the sanctuary was not one of them. I'm just going to let you say that. That's not on the list. But what was going on is that, he, that the reformers were, were very vocal about their beliefs and conviction and principles, and without them calling those people out, the Protestant Reformation would have never happened, and we would never be here today. It didn't happen because someone was backed into a corner in silence. We're in worship at Church 213 in this moment because some brave people pulled back the curtain. So, Pastor, how am I to be biblically judgmental for the good of others? Are you telling me I can judge? Absolutely. Let's judge. Some of you are like, I need to go right now. I got somebody I've been wanting to post on Facebook about. Pastor Ryan just gave me the green light. Oh, it's on. There's a second part. How do we be biblically judgmental for the good of others? And this is the second thing. Judgment is personal. Judgment is personal. Remember, it's in the context. You need to read all the verses before and after it, kind of see what's going on. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is getting ready to wind it down. He's flushing out everything in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. So let's read the whole thing again. Matthew 7, we're going to read 1 all the way to 6. So in my Bible, all of that is in one paragraph, 1 through 6. So when you see in the original context in the Greek, it, it was all just one, one, big, one big piece. And so what the translators did was they, they, they divided it into sections. So when you see something, when you see a verse, you want to read the verse in the whole context of the entire paragraph. Because that, that has the bookends on it. So you can understand everything that's going around. So it says this. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you used. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite! First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. Jesus just called people dogs and pigs. He said that, don't cast them before dogs. Really what he's saying is don't cast, don't cast a truth 
of, of Scripture to people that act as wild and unrestrained and uncaring as dogs. You can't judge me. Jesus just called somebody a dog and a pig. But it's in the context. So don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs because they're going to trample over them. They're not going to appreciate them. They're not going to soak them in. Or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. That's the context. So here's what you need to remember. The religious leaders, they are the focus here. And that's often overlooked when you look at verse 1. Don't judge lest you be judged. Well, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to a specific group of people. Jesus is drawing the minds of the listeners to, to their hearts first, which is not what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. The person who has the mind and the attitude of Christ follower, as a Christ follower, has judgmental standing or jurisdiction. Let me say that again. The person who has the mind and attitude of Christ, of a Christ follower, has judgmental standing or jurisdiction. You have the right, but only after that person has taken an honest look at themselves first. This is all the same sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, it's all the same sermon. So what I say at the end of my message today is in context to the beginning. To take one little snippet, to go back and crop one little snippet of what I say and then, and then make a, a broad stroke of application that's not in the context of the whole message would be taking me out of context. And there's a lot of harm that can be done like that. So when you're watching pastors and preachers in one little clip, and there's a lot of those on the internet, be very careful that you're not so judgmental because the person that's possibly posting that it has a motive so they just grab that one little clip to try to bring down a ministry. And so this is all the same sermon. We have judgmental standing and jurisdiction. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. I've got it extra for you. Remember, the sermon is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So this is what Matthew 5, 3 says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. So that the two go together. Jesus has already told them what must be done to be a part of God's kingdom. They have to be poor in spirit. Poor just means desperately in need of. Hungry for the things of God. Humble. Hunger and thirst for God. One that takes notice and mourns over his sin first. Jesus uses this analogy uh, of sight, of logs and specks. I cannot stand to have anything in my eye. That just drives me nuts. I had a piece of rust in the eye as a kid, and I probably could just go into my house and splash some water in it, but I freaked out and had to go to the emergency room. I can't stand to have things around, around my face. So the fact that, and, and, I, and I think that's just human nature for all of us. If you like to be poked in the eye, you're strange. But so I think because of the sensitivity of our eyes, by the way, doctors really don't understand the way the eye works. How can a million wrong, uh, uh, cones and rods in the womb meet perfectly to make sight? It's, it's indescribable. 
the hand of God. And then mysteriously at six months, somehow there's a slit in the eyelid in the fold of your eye that makes your eyelid. They cannot figure that out. You know why? Because it's a hand of our creator. And so he uses this idea of something in your eye because when you have something on your glasses, that's all you can think about. I cannot stand to have a smudge on my glasses. When I get in the car, you, you, you can ask Debbie. I'll say, could you just please? And she, you know, she'll go around and around with a little cloth. And, and I put it on. I'm like, no, there's one little thing in the pop, top left corner. Can you try again? Over and over and over and over and over. Now she's, she's wise enough. She's like, no, you need to do it yourself. Which makes sense because I'm the one looking through it. So it doesn't make sense for me to ask her to remove what's in my eye when I'm the one looking through it. That's the point I'm trying to make. And so that's the analogy of this logs and specks. He uses this because having pure motives and a heart for restoration is critical as you look and evaluate what somebody else is doing. And when our own sin is brought to the Lord in repentance... And when we see the sludge that we're holding on to, when we see the sludge that we're holding on to, we're far more careful to where we throw mud. We are far more gentle with how we throw the sludge when we realize maybe the sludge that we have on ourselves. Don't be so quick to turn the water hose on your neighbor because he has some mud on his feet if you're standing there covered with it on your body that's what he's saying right here should you judge absolutely pull back the curtain but not before you pull back the curtain on yourself yes we're supposed to tell people they've got mud on their face I mean what kind of friend would you be what kind of friend you know only after we wipe ours off first then we have cleared the path for us to speak out because we here this is it church this is good we experience already what it means to be clean, and we want somebody else to experience what we've experienced. That's it. Because when you're, you know, when you're clean, you know how that makes you feel. It makes you feel refreshed. If you're hot, you've been cutting grass, and you go in, and you take a cool shower, and you, you, know, you, you just feel refreshed. And you know, if, you're in the, if you're at the beach, and you get out, you know the way the sand and the salt makes you feel? And you go, and you know, and, and, and you take a shower. You know the way that feels. So when someone walks up that has mud on them, or is sweaty, or has all that salt water, you can say, "You know what you need to do? You need to do what I did." And so when someone comes up that you realize are outside the will of God, it's when you can say, "Let me tell you what God did for me." Man, you don't have to keep walking around like that because of what God has done for me. That's the place. That's the place that softens a heart, that makes you uh, able to come out of the corner because it gives you a place of humility and tenderness that they can actually receive it. You've already been cleaned. And you want somebody else to feel as clean as, as, clean, as clean as us, clean as you. Here's the beauty of positioning yourself under the word of God. This will clean you up. Because it's true. And so to, to come to church and to open your Bible and to let the light of Christ shine on you, it may reveal something that you don't even know is on you, that is, but that somebody else can see that's on you, and they can't hear what you're saying because they can see what's going on in your life, and you don't even see it. 
And when you open God's word and you grow in your relationship with Christ, you can see things that other people see. God points it out to you. You remove it. And now that wall is no longer there being judgmental. And you can reach them for Christ. Years ago, it's still kind of lingering a little bit. Um, I think every injury I've ever received was, was church-related. But I hurt my back on a water slide one summer. Um, I didn't know I hurt it. I know it cracked in a way that it shouldn't have. But a few months later, I began to have this intense pain, and, and I said, I need to go look at this, and, and um, went to the doctor, and she said, you need to get an MRI. I'm like, okay, those three letters sound really expensive. <laughs> So I went over, uh, went, went, went to the MRI scanning center, walked in for my appointment, and the lady said, listen, um, you know, you've got to wait a little while, which you guys know I don't like to wait. She said, but if you want to step out and go get some lunch, you can come back and we should be able to see you immediately. I said, great. So signed in, gave her my paperwork, went to Chick-fil-A. I love me some Polynesian sauce. You know, not at, yeah, I mean, everybody has a different Chick-fil-A sauce, that's fine. So I had the sandwich with the mayonnaise and the Polynesian sauce and had my lunch. It was good. Went back to the scanning center. Go in. She walks me right back. And um, she walks out with this, she walks out with this magnet about this big. And she, um, she said, I need you to stand close to this magnet. I said, what in the world? She said, do you have any metal in your face? I'm like, Why? She said, because if you have any metal in your face, the magnet of this MRI will, will pull it out of your skin. I'm like, oh, my word. I said, well, ugh, actually, I do. And a fool with a wreck, when I was a little kid, I've got a piece of metal down here. It's one of the reasons I wear, you know, you can't see it. But, you know, I, I don't know, my parents never, why did they not help me get it out? I don't know. But it's still there. And so she said, you know what, um, it might, that machine may pull it out of your face. At this point, I am mortified. And she said, but this magnet, it will test and see the strength. And so um, let me know if you feel any tugging or pulling. I said, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm scared. And so, and so she, she, gets a little, she gets a little closer, and she gets a little closer. And then there was two other um, ladies there. She called them over. And so they're all trying to see, I guess, what's under here. So I've got these three ladies right here. And I thought to myself, man, you guys have bad breath. I'm just being honest with you now, Okay. They wasn't the best. And I began to judge them that they were so close. And I began to sense something on them that I thought I had not on myself. And they said, no. They went back and forth. And she said, no, you're fine. You're fine. You can, uh, you know, go, in, go in and put on these, this gown. Da, da, da. So I go in the bathroom. And I look in the mirror. And I'm mortified. Because right here, a big gloop of Polynesian sauce is stuck in my goatee. Here I am, stared into the face of people that I don't know, judging them for, by, you know, for, their, for their breath. The whole time, they're probably thinking, that guy is a freak. He has sauce all over his face. Well, to make a long story longer, that's the point I'm trying to make. It's a perfect illustration. We are so quick to walk up on somebody and pull back the curtain when the whole time we have no idea that we have Chick-fil-A sauce all over our face. Jesus is teaching those followers a truth that applies to us. And so here's what I want to wind it down with. When we ask first for God's cleansing, we take that log out of our own eye. 
then we will see with pure motives and, and clear, clear clarity of someone else with a heart that actually wants to help them. You're not trying to gain an unfair advantage by pointing something out. We will see as God that he is the only judge. We will see others as needed sinners just like we are ourselves. We'll see our brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters at our own level with our own failures and our own needs. This is not what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. Judgment, don't you know, church, judgment is necessary. And it's allowed, but it has to be balanced. And that's what's overlooked. John chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that. It says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. You guys heard this story. This is often the verse that's used or the story that's used. You can't judge me. What about the woman who's caught in adultery? All right. He made her stand. They made her stand in the center. Basically, they wanted her to be the center. What she had done wrong was the center of attention. And then they said, teacher, they said to him. Basically, they were saying, the Bible says, taking teacher, because he was a teacher of the Old Testament. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, the Bible says, they were calling him. They were, they were trying to put him in a corner. Commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? The Bible says, you know, we're there. They asked, they asked this to what? trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him they were trying to upsurp his authority they were trying to gain unfair advantage they were trying to put their authority over his and they did that by asking him what the bible says and jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger man i can't wait to ask him what he wrote when they persisted in questioning him, they thought they had him, so they were persistent. Tell us, huh? The Bible says, what are you going to do? He, stu he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men, meaning the ones that were more religiously elite. Only he was left with a woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to him. Now, here's what I want you to know. The, the emphasis of standing up means he's getting ready to proclaim with authority. So he kneels down in her sin. He stands up in judgment to them. He kneels back down until they leave. And then he stands up again in a position of authority. And he said, woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. No one. Lord, she answered, neither do I condemn you. So Jesus said, and this is the key that so many people that misuse this verse, is this, go and from now on do not sin anymore. Who are the main players here? It's the Pharisees and the scribes. It's the same group. See, a scribe was a scripture expert in the New Testament. They're also sometimes called lawyers. They emerged as spiritual leaders because they were the ones who attempted to stay true to the Old Testament law. 
uh, without compromising the traditions of the Greek cultures that had all this political pressure. They were the ones that were supposed to stand firm. And they were the ones that were quick to say the Bible says, which was true. But it wasn't coming from a personal place of commitment and holiness to God. But it was coming from a position of religious and political power. And so they used the phrase, the Bible says, to discredit Jesus because he was a threat to their curtain. That's why they said it, because he was a threat to their curtain. And so when he stoops down and writes in the sand, the pardon of sin of this woman, he wasn't judging her. You know who who he's judging? Them. They were claiming that, that he wasn't being judgmental enough And he turned it and said, you are being plenty judgmental. He called them out. Jesus pardoned sinners, but not without a cost to himself. The cost of his own blood on the cross. God judged Jesus for us. The Bible says you shouldn't judge. God judged Jesus for us. Amen. But for some reason, though, the tolerance police... They always leave this part of the equation out. Go and sin no more. In Matthew 7, Jesus uses the word notice. He says, notice the log. Notice the speck. When you say, hey, notice something, what that means is it carries the idea of serious, continuous meditation. Hey, look, look at this, look at this. Look, y'all notice this. Come here, come here. You know, you see something that you want to draw people's attention to. What do you do? Hey, y'all come take notice of this. So Jesus uses that word. He says, notice the speck in the law. So how do we speak up biblically with biblical judgmentalism? What does all this mean? It means speaking up must be done out of meekness and not pride. Blaming others while we excuse ourselves is the point and that's where it hinges so absolutely we can judge this is on your notes a Christian which isn't a label it is a lifestyle positional place salvation isn't a a feeling it's a position a Christian should not set up a standard for someone else that they are unwilling to follow That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Because they are applying a standard that they themselves aren't willing to live under. So the context of Jesus here is simple. It's a one-two punch. When the Bible, when someone says the Bible says, and it has you in the corner, you want to be able to be prepared to come out of that corner and fight, but you can only come out of the corner when you have come out behind the curtain in your own life. And at that point, you have a testimony. At that point, you have evidence of what you're saying, and they believe that you have been changed, and you can get to a really neat place when you're trying to witness. But if you're coming out behind the curtain with mud on you, trying to claim someone has mud on them, then you're going to be a hypocrite. You're saying something that you're not willing to back up with your life. People will say, you know, talking about people that, you know, you, I love the Lord. Okay, well, are you willing to live for the Lord? I would die for Jesus. You would die for Jesus. You don't even live for Jesus. 
I love my girlfriend so much, I would die for her. You don't even live for her. Because it's in your actions. James 5, we're going to run through two scriptures and then we're going to wrap up. James 5 says this, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, how do you turn them back? You call them back. You pull back the curtain. Let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. See, the reason that I can go to a brother or you can go to a sister or we can go to a mom or a couple is we can say, I've been where you are. I know what you're going through. Let me tell you what God has done for me so I can see what you're doing. Don't do it! Galatians 6 says this, Brothers and sisters... This is, the, this is the idea of community. We're in this together. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, which means you have learned a spiritual lesson, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Man, that's a beautiful picture of, of judgmentalism, biblically, right? The reality is, it's on us when someone comes to us and says, let me tell you what God's done. Let me see what I'm noticing in your life. Those are red flags only because I've seen the red flags in my own life in the past. Let me help you avoid the destruction. It's up to us to heed the call and to listen and not to say, you can't judge me. Because if you, if you here's the beauty of verse 6. If someone comes to us, with a humble and gentle spirit, and they see something, and you cast it away, verse 6 says, you know what? You have just cast the, 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 the priceless treasure as of a pearl under the feet of pigs. You have taken something so valuable and precious that our brother and sister have prayed about, they've thought about, they've labored about, they've, they've talked themselves out of it a hundred times, and now they are, don't overlook that moment. How much courage it takes for a brother and sister to come to me and say, Hey, Pastor, I just want to encourage you. I'm seeing this. I would be a fool to say, You can't tell me what to do. No. Be tragic. Because if you know that they love you and they're coming from a place of humility and experience, we would be very wise to listen. Have ears to hear. See, a lot of damage can happen to the church. In the universal church when we say one thing and do another. Did y'all catch that? So much damage can happen to the cause of Christ when we say one thing and do another. When we say, when we, when we appear one way and we post another. When we, when we, when we say, yes, I'm going to do this, but, but then everyone knows you're doing something completely different. When you say that Christ is holy and blameless, and I know the word says be holy for I am holy, but then you go and live a way that people say, I just don't see it, so I don't want anything to do with it. What you're doing is you're casting the truth of the gospel right under the feet of pigs. And so it's important that we live lives of consistency and integrity in order that we can safeguard the name of Jesus. So what are we going to do? Judge? Or not judge. Well, what's the Bible say? Jesus tells us, 
lower the gavel. Jesus tells us to pick up the stone. Throw the book at them. Lock them up and throw away the key. But only after you've considered and applied the blood of Christ that's washed your own sins away. Once you get to that point, buried in the depths of the seas, never again to be remembered against you, clothed in perfect love, faultless, stand before God, covering in Christ's righteousness, then you can judge from that place. And when you judge from that place, it will slow your roll. That'll cause you to pump the brakes a little bit. It'll soften your tone when you speak out. And authenticity and humility, man, it will ooze out of you. And the heart of the hearer, the one that you're exposing, will hear it. And hopefully they will receive it. And you will rescue a brother. I'll close with this. Don't fall into the trap thinking that judgment is the same thing as hate. Because it is not. Judgment is not the same thing as hate. Because to judge someone... Biblical judgment, it flows from a place of deep, unconditional love. You can't hate somebody that you have unconditional love for. Unconditioned. There is nothing. Unconditional love for the Lord. Because He's called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And we want everybody to be in the same light that we have experienced ourselves. So the next time... You call somebody out, and they say, you can't judge me. Don't you know what the Bible says? Absolutely no. The Bible says it was me that should have been on that cross. The Bible says because of what Jesus did on the cross, God treated Jesus like he lived my life. But because of what Jesus did, he now treats me like I lived Jesus' life. And I have the righteousness of his blood applied to my account. And so that old stuff that used to hold me down and weigh me down, the things that I see you're doing now, I have been in the ditch. So let let me plead and beg with you. Let me share my Jesus story. They're not going to say, you can't judge me. They're going to say, you love me. You love me enough that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that is a message to share. It's from that place we speak out. It's from that place we judge one another. And it's from that place that hearts can be changed. We got to walk it. Not just talk it. We got to live it. First in our own core. Before we try to identify the core of anyone else. That's what it means. Judge not lest you be judged. So right. Judge away. But only after you judge yourself first.